the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you have tuned in to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, questions about what we believe as Christians or why we believe it, questions about the Bible, questions about uh, church, something you've seen in your church or experienced, maybe just life questions. We'll do the best that we can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And I'm down to about 11 questions, so I either need some phone calls or some new questions. Uh, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, just hit call now and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer and we would love to hear from you. 340-9585. It's Tuesday. Don't have anything to talk about, so we'll get right to some questions. My first question comes in from our email inbox. Now, a name's included, but I'll leave the name off and you'll understand why. How do you deal with a narcissist in a marriage? My husband tells me how terrible I am as a wife and blames me for everything that goes wrong and that everything is my fault. He has no faults for anything and says he has done everything God wants him to do. I'm currently in survival mode in this marriage that he no longer wants to be a part of for the third time. Um, Boy, these kind of, of situations absolutely break my heart. So let me maybe go a little bit in depth here. Um about marriage in general and how we can fix things. Uh, First and foremost, um, we we need to avoid terms, labels like narcissist. Um, You know, one person's narcissist is another person who's just thinking practically and logically. Uh, There's just no value and getting online and saying, well, he's exhibiting narcissist tendencies and looking it up. Um, I, I've found that in every marriage, um, every marriage, um, both people are at fault. Now, the problem is most people want to fix their spouse instead of getting their heart right with God. Paul and I are going to be doing a marriage conference in Garland, Texas, um, early in January sometime, I think the second week in January. And this is one of the things that I'm really going to be focusing on because uh, with this radio show, but, but just in life in general, we get these kind of questions all the time. What can you do to fix my husband or what can you do to fix my wife? There's nothing anybody can do but God. So what we have to do is focus on our role. We have to be obedient to God regardless of what he or she is doing. 
regardless of whether they're meeting your needs, regardless whether they're the nicest person in the world or the, the most awful person in the world or somewhere in between, the only thing that we can do is make sure that our heart and our lives are right with God, do what he tells us to do according to the role that he has given us in the marriage. And when we're faithful, then we have uh, sort of unloosed God to work on our spouse. But there's no helpful benefit at all to one person in a marriage blaming the other person rather than working on their own heart with God. I don't know how to explain this more clearly. We had a similar question last week and somebody wrote in and said, well, it's the wife's fault too sometimes. And, and of course it is. Of course it is. But not one of us is going to stand before God and give account of what our spouse did. What we're going to do is stand before Jesus and say, what did you do with this gift I gave you? Now, I recognize that there are lots of times when your spouse doesn't feel like a gift from God, or he or she's not acting like a gift from God. But here's what you have to do. What you need to do is say, Jesus, examine my heart. Am I bitter? Am I holding on to anger? Am I uh, the, the, the godly husband or the godly wife? that you've asked me to be. You see, the Bible says that we're not to repay evil with evil. And yet that's what we do, and we justify it by saying, well, he did that or she did that. And there's no way to fix that. There's no way to help that. So do your part. I know I've said this many times on the show, but First Peter chapter 3 uh, is, is really the, the, the scripture that's responsible for saving my life. Nobody was married to a bigger jerk than Paula was. God said to stay there, took her to 1 Peter chapter 3 and told her what her responsibility was. Not once did God ever tell her what I'm supposed to be doing. God will speak to you about you. He won't speak to you about your husband or your wife. He'll speak to you about you. And I know this is hard to hear, but whenever, every time, you're thinking about what he did, or if you're the man, what she did, then you're not hearing the voice of God at all. So love him to health. You can't do that on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only way to enjoy the power of the Holy Spirit is to walk in obedience. And then the idea then is we have to have faith that God will deal with our spouse. And because we don't have that faith typically, what we end up doing is we try to manipulate, we try to maneuver the desired result. Then we end up in arguments, we end up um, fussing and fighting with each other. And these are the kind of marriages that simply don't glorify the Lord. Uh, I'm going to, we'll, we'll be getting the, the video or the audio uh, from the, the marriage conference that Paul and I are doing uh, in Garland um, in, in January. And, and we'll find a way to make that available to you online for those of you who are interested. Um, as hard as it is to hear, deal with your heart with God and let God deal with his heart. That's the only way that God has permission to move in a marriage. If you're blaming him and he's blaming you, God's sort of on the outside looking in, wanting to get inside, but he can't. You know, and I'll, I'll wrap this up with this. Um, without question, marriage counseling is the single most difficult thing any pastor deals with. The reason is because the parties come in, they want the, the pastor to negotiate. Well, you do this, and you do this, and you give up this, and you give up that. Jesus never negotiates. Jesus is a dictator, a benevolent dictator, but he's a dictator. He says, you do this to the wife, 
you do this to the husband, and then I'm invited into the marriage. And it's the only way we're going to change. And there is so much pain. And one of the things I'll tell the people in Garland in a few weeks is that I can promise them when we get started in that marriage retreat, marriage conference, I can promise them that their wives and their husbands never have to argue again. If they choose to, they do so because of the flesh, but they never have to because all the husband and wife have to do is to agree to agree with God. In your case, and this is to the, the writer of this email, um, if he won't agree with God, then you do it. You be the tool that God uses to win his heart, to soften his heart. Hard stuff. Let's go to a phone call. We've got Sean on line one in San Antonio. Sean, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, I just heard your comments on uh, a broken marriage and how it's both people's fault, no matter what they think. And I can, mm -hmm. a perfect example for that. Uh, a year ago, God was. Um, oh, I lost okay. my wife. Yeah, a year ago, God restored my marriage. A year before that, I lost my wife, and I used to think it was just her fault. You know, how could she leave? She knows what the Word says, and she's a believer. And it took me several months to come to the realization that I was at fault, too. I, was, I drove her away, and, I mean, I... I don't know, it's just, it, it, it was so hard to come to that conclusion because, you know, by the world standard, I didn't do anything wrong, but, you know, my heart was so wrong and it was, I was manipulative and controlling and once I, once I realized everything that I did wrong to drive her away, you know, I just, all I had to do was repent and then just pray for her and wait and like you said, get out of God's way, and you brought her back. And so I, um, there's there's nothing I did physically. Every time I tried to fix it, she just went further and further away. She used to say, man, I miss him so much. If you would just shut up, I would come back. But I never <laughs> did. And once I finally did, once I just, you know, all I did was just pray for her and, repent of my sins and it was it's a miracle to see what the lord did and so i just want to encourage all those other marriages out there you know if you're the one who was like me thinking that you know i'm not doing anything wrong if your marriage is messed up you did something wrong so, <laughs> you know sean i, I and obviously <laughs> obviously i know you and, and 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 your wife and um uh because i know your wife so well you are completely wrong she's perfect <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Yeah, I appreciate it very, God very bless. much. God bless you. You know, Sean won't mind me sharing a little bit. This is such a great story. Um, um, you know, a lot of times uh, the person that leaves um, is, is like, like Sean just indicated, the person that stays will say, well, well, she knows the word or he knows the word. Why did they leave? They're not supposed to do that. And then if, if we'll just listen to the Lord, he'll tell you a bunch of things that you weren't supposed to do that you did, that you were guilty of. It's amazing when somebody takes a step and leaves, and it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, so don't misunderstand me. But it, it's also not a good thing to be controlling in Sean's case. It's not a good thing to be unkind. It's not a good thing to raise your voice. And yet we do those things and we figure a way to rationalize and justify them when in fact the only thing that we ought to be doing is making sure that the fruit of the Spirit is what's evident coming from our lives. Now in this particular case, Sean and Jessica uh, uh, go to our church, uh, uh, they have kids in our school, and watching this breakup was really, really painful. Our kids in chapel pray uh, every day. They take turns um, 
my, my classrooms praying. And um, Sean's son uh, was uh, one of those kids that would, would pray with, you know, one of those no guile kids. He's just praying his heart, bring mommy and daddy back together, bring mommy and daddy back together. There'd be days he'd come into ch to the school and he'd be crying, but they just prayed for him. And he kept praying. And one of the neatest things in 23 and a half years is watching God do this impossible thing by putting this marriage back together. And they're fun to watch now. I get to see them often, and uh, they're fun to watch. My point in all of this is that as it was for Sean and Jessica, there's hope for all of you, but that hope is in Christ. That hope isn't in your spouse changing the hope is is Jesus, the power of God, and He can fix anything. Sean, I appreciate very, very much you taking the time to call. I hope that was very encouraging for some. Here is a question from Davis. Uh, what would you recommend for someone who just learned he is called to pastoral ministry? Uh, well, Davis, congratulations. It's a great, great life. Um, can be difficult at times, but but it is so overfilled with joy um, to 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 see God's hand moving in people's lives, and and to imagine that God gave you a little piece of that, and you're going to get rewards for some of that just because you did your part teaching the word and loving people and counseling people. Um, is is a wonderful wonderful thing. Uh, I I tell people here at our church all the time that I'm the richest man on the, on the planet. Certainly not with money, but my life is rich in its fullness of passion. So congratulations. Now, what would I recommend uh, as you just begin this sort of walk to pastoral ministry? Um, Davis, the one thing more than anything else is you got to fall in love with your Bible. You need to be a man that devours the Word. Not just rightly dividing it, we know the verses. It's not just reading it, it's not just reading commentaries, but I mean the Word has got to get into your heart. You've got to start thinking of everything from a New Testament perspective. Insofar as if somebody uh, asks you a question and you give them some direction, you better have New Testament um, um, ammunition to back it up. Uh, the way you think, the way you interact with people. There has to be New Testament direction providing that. And the only way you can do it, the only way, Davis, is to dig into the Word. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will know the perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will of God. That's Romans 12, too. And uh, you need a new thought process. It's always about Jesus. The second thing you need to do is spend all of your time with him. Not just the morning. Uh, if you go to work, take him to work. Uh, but always, always, always make sure that he's in charge in your home. If you have a family, your wife and your children, um, they need to see a, a, a husband and a dad who's the living, breathing example of what the Bible teaches in terms of the way a man should live his life. Your kids ought to be able to look at you, Davis, if I said, what's your daddy's favorite book? Oh, that's easy, the Bible. If I could talk to your wife, I'd say, well, tell me what Davis is like in private. She ought to look at me and she'd say, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. That's just who he is. And we need to understand that there's great accountability with this magnificent responsibility of teaching. You have to be a man who serves others rather than expecting to be served. That's interestingly, Davis, one of the problems with pastors. You know, there's just too many pastors who think that the church is there to serve them when in fact it's just the other way around. So that's the first thing that you need to do. And as you begin that process, the Lord will become more and more clear about things like Bible college or or uh, a direction to go with the pastoral minister starting a Bible study. Let me suggest one other thing. Uh, I'm assuming you're married. You, you don't say that in your, in your uh, email here. Uh, but 
if you're if you're not you will be get involved now today in ministry with your wife uh, Paul and I our very first ministry was a nursing home ministry uh, it was before I went to Bible college I knew I was called to be a pastor and um, you know I was trying to teach a Bible study during the midweek but but the one thing that we knew for sure God wanted us to do was to go to a nursing home and he taught me so much not only did we get to experience um, some of the best people ever but we learned the urgency of ministry together ministering side by side with people who are truly in their last days and sometimes in their last hours people who are lost and lonely and hurting and hungry and we got to be Jesus' hands and Jesus' feet and Jesus' heart to them. And he taught me so much. Taught me a lot about me, but he taught me so much about the way he wants the people he loves to be cared for. Final thing I'll say with regard to this is, Davis, you ought to be sharing Jesus with everybody you see. We're starting right now. You go to the gym, you need to be talking to people about Jesus. Everybody, everywhere you go, they need to know to whom you belong. It's really important that Jesus is coming not only through your life, but out of your mouth. There's no value in keeping our Jesus a secret from the world, for the people that need him. And as a pastor, you're going to be telling people that their responsibility is to share. And you can't do that with any authority unless you are one who shares yourself. So tell people about Jesus. Be known as the Jesus guy at work. Be known as the Jesus guy in the neighborhood. Your kids should hear Jesus coming out of your mouth all the time. And when they do, you'll get it. Let me give you a clue. I think that's why Paul, in writing to Philemon, he said in the sixth verse, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith. Here's why. So you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. So Davis, that's the first thing. To do. This is building a foundation. And again, if you're married, um, my observations have been, we've planted 29 churches out of this church. I tell every single pastor that the first two years are about him and his wife. Knitting their hearts together in the ministry. So it's not a competition between time for husband, time for pastor. It's husband and wife immersed in the ministry together. There's long hours, there's irregular hours. But oh, what a rich, rich, rich life it is. So, Davis, I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question that says, My husband and I are in a church where my kids love to go. The teaching isn't very deep, but if we leave, our kids will be upset. What should we do? Uh, anonymous, what you should do is be the parent, and you and your husband should be making the decisions about where your family is going to go to church. Your kids absolutely don't get a vote. The most important thing you can do for your children is to get a, uh, to give them a mother and a father who are being taught the Word of God. The Bible is so deep, it's so rich, it's so full. If you're going to what I call a church light type of church, if you're not growing, then you're not helping your children at all. So you choose, you and your husband together, you choose where you're getting fed. And your kids will adapt. You know, the cool churches with all the neat things for kids to do. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of importance, that's just barely registering a 1. What really matters is that your kids see you and your husband falling in love with Jesus, falling in love with God's Word, bringing that to the home where you're with your children, 
um, in the Word, family devotions, where they see mom and daddy love each other. They both love Jesus. And as you grow in the grace and knowledge of who God is, that's the key, knowing who Jesus really is. Not just intellectually, but, but in your heart, really knowing who he is. When you give them that mom or when you give them that dad, then they're going to love church wherever you go. So go to a church where you're being fed. Go to a church that provides an opportunity for you to serve. And when you do, then things will change. One of the most frustrating things that we've had from time to time, uh, well, you know, my kids want to go to this cool church, and, and so we're, we, you know, we don't want them to get sour about church, so we're going to go. Kids don't get a vote in those kind of things. And I mean kids, if they're in your home, high school or beyond, if they're in your home, go to church together. But again, be sure that you're getting fed. So Anonymous, I hope that helps. We have 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Um, Pastor Ron Arbar, you're listening to The Word to Stand In for Life. We will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the word to stand on for life we've got 30 minutes left today and we would love your live calls 340-9585 here is a question from abby she says, it often seems to me that single people are forgotten about in churches. Why isn't there more focus on helping singles instead of the constant focus on marriages? It seems unfair, even unkind to me. Um, Abby, I've heard this comment, um, a complaint really, uh, about church all the time. Um, the truth is, churches are... Um, appealing to the, the, the greatest number of people. When we, we do things, uh, there are more married people in most churches than there are single people. If there were more single people than married people, it would be the opposite. So when we're using illustrations or when we're, 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 we're doing series on marriages, it's, it's affecting um, uh, a lot of people now. But before I go on and, and give you some more information, let me say this, that, that single people need to hear messages on marriage. It's preparation. Now, if you never want to be married, there's still a lot of wonderful things that you can get that will help you as you pursue Jesus. Now, a couple of things. Um, there should be no focus in any church except teaching the Word. Um, teaching the way I teach here, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, it solves this problem because um, the way I teach through the Bible, everybody is going to get touched at some point, you can't avoid it. And so when, when we're going through um, uh, certain books of the Bible, there's going to be an emphasis on singles. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he talks about that. Uh, in Ephesians, the emphasis is going to be on marriage when you get to chapter 5. Um, but, but, but you're going to talk to everybody about everything. And then as it applies to you, as the Holy Spirit begins to, to prick your heart, um, you can make uh, the necessary adjustments and, and, and glean from uh, the things that are spoken. That's the word. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. So that's what the focus needs to be in churches. Uh, I am sad with you, Abby, when I, I think about um, churches that are always doing the popular thing, sex and marriage or, or healthy marriage or how to raise children. Uh, because those are, are, are uh, things that, that intentionally leave people out. Um, 
we have marriage groups, we have singles groups in, in churches. Truth is, we're all part of a body and it takes all kinds. So, um, maybe just a little bit, Abby, uh, you see nothing but a focus on married couples um, because you're single. Um, but but listen a little more closely. If your pastor is teaching the Bible, um, then understand that he's going to talk to you at some point. Now, here's something that I want to be really, really um, uh, specific about. Um, it's not church's job to teach single people or to provide ministries for single people so that they can find dates or they can find friends. You know, if you hang around the church... Um, in fellowship, if you're serving, you're going to have plenty of friends. You're going to have plenty of people that you can hang out with and spend time with, and that time will be focused on Jesus, on the Word of God. Um, but, but you know, uh, over the years, I've actually had people leave our church because I won't have a singles group. We have one singles group. It's called Single Pearls, and it's a a ministry that is designed to teach single women. It's just for women. It's designed to teach single women to be content in their singleness, while at the same time being open, if that's the desire of their heart, to the prospect of Jesus bringing a man into their lives. But other than that, I've had people leave because I won't have singles groups or singles nights where people can kind of come check each other out. And uh, I've had people get really angry. Well, you don't care that we're, we're lonely. My job is not to matchmake. I'm a big proponent. People here at Calvary Chapel will tell you. I'm a big, big, big proponent of finding a potential spouse in church. I'm a proponent of that because you get to see him or you get to see her. And you get to observe their walk with the Lord. You don't have to guess whether or not they're really committed or sort of committed. You can watch the fruit in their lives. You can do that from a safe distance for a while. But when you see somebody that is attractive to you, when you see somebody whose walk with Jesus is genuine, well, that'll open your heart up. So the focus has to remain on Jesus and not on being single, not on being married, just on being with Jesus. And the only matchmaking that's done here at Calvary Chapel is the matchmaking done by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, as he causes people to sort of bump into to one another. we got a lady in our church who's had some really tough luck, um, men who who um, weren't who they said they were, and a lot of pain. And uh, she came to me oh, a couple of weeks ago and said, I just want to let you know, Pastor, there's, a, there's a, a man who's expressing interest, and I believe he's the real deal. And see, that's what God will do if we give him the opportunity. But, but if we go to church to have our needs met as a married person or as a single person, well, then the focus is off Jesus and the focus is solely on us. And we're missing out on the whole idea. Let me make a suggestion to you. Abby, wherever it is that you go to church, find a ministry to serve in. Spend time with those people, serving with them. Most ministry groups like that will have social things that they will do. Find that group and fit in. But as God knits your heart together, serving together, then your heart will be open, your needs will be met. And whether you want to be single or whether you want to be married, it doesn't matter. Then you're going to find out that the only thing you really want is God's will for your life. So I'm sorry that it seems unfair, even unkind. That's a, that's a very, very hard thing for a pastor to hear. It seems unkind. Um, that's certainly not anybody's intent. In, in churches that don't teach the Bible the way we do, churches that do series, they're just trying to appeal to the largest number of people. And um, honestly, singles in the church are a relatively small segment of the church. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't help them. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't um, want them to be feel a part of the body. It just means that... Um, a series on singleness 
would exclude necessarily 80% of the people in a lot of churches. Thank you, Abby. Let's go to Cindy on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, I've got two things. One, last night Paula taught the ladies um, for a Monday night study, and it was so good. She does such a good job, and she did say <laughs> something that for some reason I, I keep kind of forgetting that it's true, and that's that God loves me, which is the way she said it. it kind of reminded me to remember that he loves me because lately I kind of have been forgetting that. But what I'm calling about is on Thursdays, the ladies' study is really good too. Uh, we were in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33, and we came upon, it starts at verse 8, and it's Moses is blessing the tribes. And he says, about Levi, he said, you're, and I'm not sure how to pronounce these words, you're Thummim and Uim or something, belong to the man <laughs> you favored. You tested him at Massas. You contended with him at the waters of Mirabath. And then it goes on to say a bunch of other stuff. But what I'm wondering about, what are those two things? And I'll get off the air and, and listen to you. Thank you, Cindy. Appreciate your comments about Paula, too. One of our missions in life, <laughs> one of our missions in life is to convince people that God really does love them, that you're valuable to God. Um, the Thummim, that's a hard thing to say for me, and the Urim were probably two stones that were kept in the breastplate of the high priest, and they would use those stones to ask God's questions, God questions to determine what is will. And um, um, those two stones in the breastplate of the high priest um, would, would, if you'd ask a, a yes question, one, one stone would, would shine. If the answer was no, the other stone would shine. Uh, for most of Israel's history, however, the Umim and the Urim, I'm sorry, the Thummim and the Urim, um, were kept in bags and they would just sort of like casting a lot they would just shake it out ask God a question and it would come that way it's a very imprecise way of determining the will of God of course remember they didn't have the Holy Spirit but the, the Thummim and the Urim were those two stones and it would give you a yes and no answer and that would be typically uh, the way that Jews would discern the will of God so thank you, Cindy. Appreciate it very, very much. Here is our next question from David. Interesting question. Since Christians aren't supposed to sue Christians, how can a Christian get relief if another Christian refuses to let the church decide? Um, David, Christians aren't supposed to be jerks either, and sometimes we just are. Here's the thing that we have to be prepared to do. Remember, following God, Jesus said, to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Pick up your cross, Luke adds the word daily, and follow him. Well, implicit in that is the idea of sacrifice. And when Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says that, that Christians shouldn't sue other Christians, you're doing this to your shame and before unbelievers... Um, get somebody the church to make a decision uh, we're better able to judge what's right and what's wrong but then he says something that really goes against everything that, that our flesh holds near and dear he says shouldn't you rather suffer loss than bring shame on the name of Jesus shouldn't you rather suffer loss in other words before you sue somebody just to get what you believe is rightfully yours if that person's a Christian wouldn't it be better if you just suffered loss now the truth David is that not many of us believe that not many of us believe that uh, there is a, a situation right now where a pastor of a mega church in the Chicago area is suing um, some bloggers who have been um, openly critical f of him and the way they, they do church for many, many years. Um, uh, 
almost on a, on a crusade to bring that church down. And while the bloggers are wrong, uh, this guy's suing them now for defamation of character and trying to get them to be forced to stop. Um, well, this brings shame on the name of Christ. Uh, he ought, the pastor ought, rather to be wronged than to bring the shame on the name of Jesus. No, we're just not used to losing. We don't like to lose, and we have this instinct to defend ourselves. But remember this, David, as long as you're defending yourself, God can't defend you. And this is one of the things that I've had to learn in, in the years. Now, we've never sued anybody, and we haven't been sued, praise God. But there are times when you just have to be okay with somebody lying about you. They lied about Jesus. They lied about Paul. They lied about Peter. Sometimes you just have to be okay. Sometimes if you sue somebody for money, you got to be okay with not getting the money back. If it's a business deal, and Christians ought to be careful about business deals with Christians. You don't do business with somebody because they're a believer. You do business with them because they are good at their business. And then that business is conducted honorably, it's conducted legally, and it's conducted the same way that he would conduct business with an unbeliever. And you're just insulating yourself from these kinds of things. The businessman in a situation like that, David, ought to be one who does all things as unto the Lord. No shortcuts. Don't assume because it's a Christian you're going to get away with stuff. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of business people that use the Dove and the, we're a Christian company. They'll use little Bible verses on their on their trucks or vans. We have a guy in our church who, uh, a couple of them in fact, who are general contractors. And they do such great work. And... Um, you know, it's it's all about Jesus. It's it's sure they get paid for doing it, but both of those men, I can tell you, if somebody refused to pay and that person was a professing Christian, they would suffer the loss gladly, rather than take somebody to court. That's what Paul is communicating uh, in in Corinthians. So, um, rather than worry about how we can get relief. The way we get relief is to suffer loss, if that's the case. And I know that's a horribly difficult thing to have to deal with, because it just doesn't seem fair. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Steve wants to know, was there one angel or two at the tomb of Jesus? And how can I explain that contradiction to someone else? Uh, Steve, there was two angels. There's no contradiction. There is no contradiction. It's just that one gospel writer will say there were two men shining uh, like the sun. They were, they were just, they were, the glory of God was there. Uh, another gospel writer will, will only focus on there was a man there. Uh, we know it's an angel in the appearance who appeared as a man. But he didn't say there was only one. That would be a contradiction. If the other guy said there were two, but the other one said, there's only one. Then there's a contradiction. But when, when, when in Luke's gospel, as example, when he focuses on the one angel, he's speaking about the angel that's also speaking to the subjects in the story. The angel who's speaking. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? So it's not a contradiction at all. There were two Angels, You know, Steve, just this past, uh, no, it was two Sundays ago now, uh, I taught uh, the story of Legion in Luke chapter 8. Legion, who was filled with at least 2,000 demons. Uh, I think it's Mark's gospel, it could be Matthew, but I think it's Mark's gospel. When he tells the story, he says there were two demon-possessed men who were sitting there. Uh, Luke's account says there was only, doesn't say there was only one, it said uh, Legion, a man who identified himself as Legion. That was the one Jesus was speaking to. Again, no contradiction, it's just a different perspective. One other thought, Steve. Whenever you have uh, somebody who is 
a skeptical or a cynic, and they point out things like this that they obviously haven't thought through, um, just tell them, what would you think if all four gospel accounts were identical in every detail? And if they're honest, they think, well, if they were identical in every detail, then they copied from one another. You know, they were in cahoots. Uh, what we've got is a gospel from four different perspectives. With a lot of the same information, but sometimes with a different focus or a different point of view. So, uh, there were two angels. That answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Paul. He says, "How can we be against gay marriage when the Bible endorses polygamy throughout the whole Old Testament?" Um, Paul, you need to study your Bible. The Bible doesn't endorse polygamy. Polygamy is always a sin. God told His people, "Don't multiply wives." Now they did, but that wasn't God who was blessing it. That was man rebelling against God. Uh, the same thing is true now. I might say to you, if if, uh, if you drank too much occasionally, I'd say, well, well, how can somebody get drunk occasionally when the Bible says not to do it? Don't blame the Bible for that. We make choices. So the Bible never once endorses polygamy. Never once. It tells the truth. People had more than one wife and Solomon's case, he had a thousand women in his life. And believe me, they paid the consequences of those choices that are outside of the will of God. Now, I want to say this to you as well, Paul. We're against gay marriage and homosexual relationships because God forbids them. And we want people to go to heaven instead of hell. And if they're unwilling to come to Jesus, to, to, to have their sins forgiven, if they're going to live lives that the Bible declares clearly are going to disqualify them from any inheritance in the kingdom of God, rather than challenging what God says, we should be sharing with people what God says Be very careful. That's pretty weak scholarship to come up with. God endorses polygamy. That sounds like one of those things that somebody who's never read the Bible would say, Paul. We're inside, what, five minutes, four minutes? Okay, here is an anonymous question. I love this one. I'm a new believer. What do you advise me to do to get grounded as a Christian? Anonymous, I love, love, love this question. Welcome to the family of God. You are in for the ride of your life, not only in this life, but also in eternity as well. Uh, first and foremost, get a Bible and read it, read it, read it, and read it some more. In the process, you're finding out who Jesus is. Here's the dynamic. Everybody who comes to Jesus Christ for the very first time is meeting a complete stranger. You know how awkward it is when you meet somebody for the very first time and you, you don't know them at all and, you know, conversation can be just a little bit awkward. Um, but the more you talk to them, the more you get to know them, the easier the conversation flows. Well, Jesus, you can accept him as your Lord and Savior, but he's still basically a stranger to you. So you got to get to know this Jesus who loves you so much that he died for your sins. You're going to get to know this Jesus who now tells you he has a plan for your life. And the only way to do that is in the Word. In the Word. So first and foremost, get a Bible and read it. Don't worry about what you don't understand. Just focus on what you do understand and being obedient to that. Uh, I always used to have a legal pad. I'm a legal pad person. Um, legal pad next to me and if I was reading my Bible and there was something I didn't understand I'd just make a note of it and then I'd keep reading and then as I was obedient to the things that I did understand I'd get more light more information on the things that I didn't understand 
So you need to know this Jesus inside and out. Not just know about him, not just be saved, but get to know him. You want his heart to be your heart. You want his mind to be your mind. Philippians says our mind, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. To do that, you've got to know what his mind is all about. The second thing you need to do to get grounded is to find a church that teaches the Bible. Not a church that preaches at you or tells funny stories, but a church that opens the Bible and teaches it. Let the Lord use a Bible teacher to influence your life. When I got saved, Anonymous, I was so anxious to find out about this Jesus. I was so excited that uh, I, I couldn't get enough. Uh, Paul, <laughs> we'd go to two, three, sometimes four churches on a Sunday because this church was done, but there's somebody there's an afternoon or an evening service. Let's go do that. Um, I would I would constantly read uh, or, or listen to, to, to Bible teaching Christian programs. Uh, now with the advent of the internet, um, I've got guys in our church who uh, will tell me that you know they spend the mornings listening to me in Romans or in the evenings spending to listening to me in another book. Um, it's just because we're hungry. We need to eat. So that's what you do. Then when you find a church, serve. Learn that Christ in you is to benefit others, not to benefit you. When you learn that, you lose yourself, you'll find what life really is. Anonymous, go for it. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Appreciate the phone calls. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.